This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Build Business Acumen Podcast, where we deliver practical knowledge and powerful guidance. Here is your futuristic host, Nathaniel Schooler. Today I'm interviewing someone called Chrissy Lightfoot, and she's a legal futurist, and she's actually the CEO of Entrepreneur Lawyer Limited and CEO of Robot Lawyer Lisa which is a tool that you can actually use to create contracts and NDAs. You don't even need to use a real lawyer for that. And I find that really, really interesting. She's been mentioned uh, as a cool vendor in AI for small and medium-sized businesses by Gartner, Inc. She's won all sorts of awards, really. She's in, in Entrepreneur Magazine as a top 10 lawyer turned entrepreneur, advisor to the board of The Telegraph's, Digital Enterprise Network, selected by Feedspot as one of the top 50 entrepreneur blogs on the web. She's an honorary visiting fellow at the University of Westminster School of Law, AI and Robots in Law. This is a really interesting episode. We talk about entrepreneurial thinking and entrepreneurial skills are key, really, for actually staying away from being disrupted by technology which is happening fast let's dig into the episode and i think you'll like this one well hi there chrissy it's it's lovely to speak with you after this all this time we tried to kind of arrange a arrange a conversation but got so busy i'm really really interested to learn more about the robot lawyer lisa which is a a, from what i understand an ai powered sort of contract creation tool right yeah, absolutely, Nathaniel. It's uh, first of all great to speak with you after so long. So it's really fantastic. Um, uh, but yes, uh, you, essentially, you, you've got it. Robot Lawyer Lisa is the world's first impartial AI lawyer, as as we branded her, and as, and I say hers, and we've given her a personality. So she has her own Twitter stream and YouTube and Facebook and what have you. And and yes, it does exactly that. We've we've built a system whereby two lay people or two business people can create. Uh, documents uh, between themselves so there's no need for any human sister involvement whatsoever um, it's it's done in a way that is unique because we're the first company to go to market where uh, the system works totally bilaterally and transparent uh, hence the word impartial so it's objective as well so these two people can actually use the system and they're educated and made aware of the legal and commercial nuances of what's involved in this particular legal contract so, so yeah, we've had a load of interest. I mean, the flagship tool, our MVP that went to market back in beta mode in November 2016, was launched April 2017 after much feedback, is being used in about 80 countries worldwide. So we're, we're very pleased with the take-up. Uh, what it does tell us is that there is a real need and demand for this type of product, this bilateral product, but it's a completely new way for users to behave and certainly 
from a supplier perspective, it's been a good learning curve for us, you know, having to be agile and respond to our customers' needs and demands as to what, you know, how they're feeling about using this, the, the trust that they put in the system and what have you. It's really, really great where it's at. And from that, spun off that, we were talking with our customers and they identified other contracts that would be really useful in this day and age and, and uh, how people live and work is going to alter massively in the next decade or two. So we focused in on creating some property contract tools. So we've done a lodger agreement, a short haul tenancy agreement, also known as a residential lease and a commercial lease as well. So we're particularly focusing on helping the mass market, the majority of people who have been neglected by traditional law firms and solicitors and, and bringing a cheaper, easier, faster, efficient, quality product to the marketplace to help mass market. The feedback's fantastic. And we're, we're just moving into first sales territory with distribution channels, i.e. bigger companies that the end users are lay people or small businesses. You know, we're quite pleased with how the company is progressing. But, you know, without anything, you know, in this day and age, you've got to be very entrepreneurial and being able to flex and adapt and, and where you thought the market might be or how you go to market. We've had to assess at each corner and each turn and deflect and, and where we failed in some areas. We've um, picked up on that and learned and tried new areas and eventually we've found our sweet spot. So, uh, but that, that's, that's taken us a good 18 months or so from getting some initial product out there, testing with it, piloting it, working with you know, um, the design right and, and fitting in with the normal trend of how um, people, you know, customers are willing to use these kind of products. I mean, um, you yourself are, are, are well aware, you know, the different types of AI, machine learning, and LP, and how the majority of people in the world are starting to use these tools and whether or not they trust them or not. And, you know, it's a big, it's a big ask to ask um, people to use a, a system where their legal contracts are so important. You know, you're talking going from the rudimentary contracts to very complex. I mean, a commercial lease is not a, a simple contract in, in any respect. So we have identified that the users and, and how they use our systems fits in with the research that proves that a third of people using any form of AI product or, you know, self-help DIY legal product or, you know, or not even a legal product, but any product, a third of people are happy to use technology in the first instance 100% and, and not have any human intervention. The second third do require human intervention happy with the technology first but they do want some human touch either at the beginning or an end of this kind of thing and the third uh, section third third aren't, aren't interested at all because they don't trust it part of the challenges that we've had is the regulatory environment where a lot of potential distribution channels or intermediaries say that we should be regulated and all the rest of it but but we don't so it's we've had to educate the marketplace as we've been going as well and it's been interesting to see how users as well have used the tool, whether they have used it bilaterally or just unilaterally, because, you know, we are used to as human beings dealing with a solicitor on a unilateral basis where you're the client and you talk to your solicitor and then whomever the business person is on the other side, they will talk to their solicitor. So the two solicitors talk together, but the two business people never talk together. They talk through their solicitors. Whereas this is great for us to, to see that um, our users are using it as in, business person to business person and using it bilaterally so that they are going in the system and altering anything that they don't like or haven't agreed on and they can negotiate and about a third of our users are using it bilaterally so in time we, we will see that you know like most things as time goes on and that continuum more people will start to use it bilaterally but it, it is syncing nicely with where the, the market research has proven how people are tending to use things at this point in time.
Very interesting. So in terms of the current situation with lawyers, are they actually using it with their clients or is that something that isn't really happening right now? Lawyers in law firms are focusing very much on their um, legal tech, which is facing mainly on their existing clients. So they will use it as a a marketing tool or an add-on or a, um, a client engagement and also part of their legal process. So legal tech sits quite differently to where we are positioned as robot lawyer Lisa with law tech. And the differentiation is quite simple. Legal tech has been a burgeoning industry whereby lots of technology companies sell into law firms and lawyers, whereby they know that they want to make it easier for lawyers to do what they've always done in the way they've always done it. So they will be, those lawyers will be engaging with their existing clients or new clients where they want to have the human lawyer engagement as well. And, and they would want to be looking for legal tech that speeds up the process of that or helps them negate some of the time involved with their normal traditional legal tasks. Conversely, where we sit in law tech is very much about we don't want the human lawyer involved at all. So there shouldn't be any human lawyer intervention necessary. We've built this so that the the, the robot lawyer Lisa has been embedded with that legal knowledge, experience and talent and wisdom so that as the user works through it, they are totally do-it-yourself, self-help, self-serve based on the information that we have actually embedded in the system. So LawTech is very much focused on those individual users who are going to use the system with another person basically on a bilateral basis, which is unique because even where lawyers in law firms are using legal tech, they tend to use it so that they have some involvement or human lawyer involvement at some stage or or want to lead them onto some higher level legal work one way or another. Whereas we've built a system so that we're more than happy for our users to go off to their local solicitor or use their existing solicitor as well as they've been happy with what they've created for example the commercial lease a commercial lease can cost anywhere between two thousand to ten thousand pounds for a normal office lease for example if by you know a solicitor standards charging a client but if, if somebody uses our system and they're 95 percent happy with it but they just want to use a human solicitor to check and top and tail and sit under their insurance then that human system might charge them 250 500 pounds and they might have only paid a few hundred quid for hours so they've saved themselves thousands of pounds and, and the main thing is, is about the time that it takes to create something like this. You know, the user could come on and create a commercial lease in 20 minutes. Whereas if you try to get a commercial lease out of a human solicitor in a law firm in 20 minutes, I would put money against it. It wouldn't happen, not unless they were using a system like this. And they could drop their other 20 unilateral one-to-one clients, which, which isn't going to happen or hasn't happened as yet. So it's been a very slow take-up by lawyers and law firms to even consider this simply because it doesn't sit with their existing business model they'd have to really reassess their business model and culture to align saying basically this point in time we're, we're happy with our existing clients or getting new clients at a 90% of the cost we would normally charge them pumping out mass volume self-help contracts a lot of law firms and lawyers haven't made that step yet and, and might not be willing to for another year or two I think I don't think they're gonna like this at all to be honest <laughs> Well, it is what it is. It is, Nathaniel, but I would say that we're not out. We're not out. We haven't put ourselves out there to disrupt and put human systems out of work. Uh, we're purely focused on that 80%, 80%, 90% that haven't actually ever been served by human systems. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah. I mean, I, just to give you an example, I'm going through divorce right now, right? 
And, oh dear, and, yeah, that's and not good to hear. Have you got a, a solution for divorce on there? No, unfortunately, not not as yet. And and it may or may not be something we go down at this point in time because there are other. Uh, solutions. I don't know if you're aware, but uh, uh, the English courts, I mean, there is one where people can do online divorce now. Yeah, I mean, I would say there isn't a 100% catch-all solution out there right now. And I think it would be very, you know, it's not, I don't think it would be impossible, but, you know, the the amount of money that would need to be invested from a tech uh, business to, to, to do that kind of solution. And also, you may need a human lawyer at some point. For, for some early stage stuff, to get yourself to a certain stage, there's no reason why not it couldn't be developed, whereby divorce could be made a lot simpler and quicker and cheaper. There was a company up here in the north called Resolve, and where they, they did actually build a system and, and was starting to being used, where even taking through the mediation and arbitration was possible, and then only the, the barristers on either side would be involved at the point where they'd actually agreed the, the finance and all the rest of it. So... You know that it is possible to actually do these kind of things, but if I could just say they, they cost a lot of money and they take a lot of time and, and investment, and, and because of that, uh, the you know the rollout of any type of uh, legal tech or law tech product is is taking time, and 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 as I say, juxtapose with user behaviour. You know, so some users have just said we'll we'll happily do it and take a risk. You know, try and sign off everything without any human in, intervention whereas others will want a mix of both. So you have to keep that in mind because people aren't ready to make a complete digital switch 100%. It's no different than analog TV going to digital TV um, or people being really comfortable with putting their credit cards in you know, eBay or whatever. It, you know, that it, took, it took years for people to actually sing, this has become mainstream and it's the norm. And, and I don't see it being any different in the legal ecosystem either. I agree. I mean, I think there's some there's early adopters, isn't there? And then there's the sort yes. of the people who are nervous and the, and the people who are the laggards at the end, which are just, you know, might get around to it in 20 years. But they're, they're more like the people who are going to use a traditional solicitor anyway, because they want to talk to someone, you know. So I think it's I think it's just a fantastic, uh, fantastic thing. There are so many developments now within within AI and machine learning and stuff. I just I just think it's great what you've done and it's pioneering, you know. I mean you're in 80 countries. That's just that's just incredible. And it, is that multilingual then? No, no, it's it's used in 80 countries and the system is English law, English jurisdiction. So anybody who is using our NDA, the confidentiality agreement. AI tool they're using a system which basically once they've drafted their contract using the system it is you know the jurisdiction is England and it's English law and it's in English so we haven't rolled out anything where it's in Spanish or Italian or Greek or anything like that because once again you're looking at a different front end and if you wanted to do you know multi-jurisdiction there you're going to have to devise the, the, the base documents that uh, take into consideration the different law in the different jurisdictions so but we do know that you know maybe 60 percent of most litigious or contract work you know people look to english law anyway which is why i think it's been so popular so people are willing to use a confidentiality agreement where the recourse would be an english court of law this nda has been out there for over 18 months two years and you know we haven't had any issues whatsoever just had more and more take up which is fantastic and and as for the property tools they're built with english and welsh law in mind where people who are coming to visit the UK, whether it's for leisure, visit family and are staying somewhere else but don't want to stay in a hotel but are taking a short-term lodger in a, in, a, in a room somewhere, you know, to have those different alternatives. When people obviously coming to work from, you know, Europe or different continents, 
and they're looking for short-haul tenancy agreements rather than using the, the bog standard templates that you might get from an estate agent, which are, are pretty basic, where the law is going to show fairness and dialogue between landlords and tenants. Obviously, our system is perfect for that because you've got a bilateral system where the dialogue and the exchange has actually happened and you improve that. So, so yeah, uh, it, it is amazing that we, we were very surprised, actually, how it has grown, you know, the, the, the stretch and the breadth of where the NDA is being used. And so much so that obviously we were um, listed in Gartner's report, 2008 AI, small and mid-sized business report, being one of the, the tech companies to look out for, mainly because we've got such a global reach and a global brand now. That's great. In terms of sort of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial skills, this is this is the fundamental skill that can be lost in the excitement of being entrepreneurial in nature. I mean, I've been involved with all sorts of different different ventures in the last 10 years. And generally, the ones that don't work out are the ones where you don't have a contract in general. Warren Buffett, you know, he can shake hands and he can go and buy a, a department store, wasn't it? Or a bed store. And I think he, he actually just walked in and he spoke to the lady and he said, uh, he said, how much do you want for it? He agreed a price, shook hands and then walked out. And that was how he did a deal. But that was, that was just what he did, you know. But, <laughs> but in the entrepreneurial world, feelings can change. At the be- I mean, you know, at the beginning, everyone's excited and they all, they all want to grow a business and, and partner and all this sort of stuff. But I think unless you have that contract and that piece of paper that says, this is what it is. This is the percentage. This is the this is the get out clause, and this is the, the NDA as well, which, like you say, is 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 important. I, I think you, you know you have to trust those people extremely well to not to not actually sign an NDA. I mean, I I personally I won't really sign an NDA now in technology because all the possibilities are in my mind anyway. So if I go and sign an NDA, I'm actually going to get going to probably do myself over because it, it means that if the con if the nda says the wrong thing then in the next five or ten years if i'm working with a different company that's in that space right in some shape, shape or form i'm going to get in trouble personally from my perspective i won't sign one and and i will actually just do business on trust yeah so yeah yeah i'm, I'm slightly different in that respect but i think in terms of an NDA, when it comes to certain things, it's, it's, it's vitally important. There's no doubt about it. So with your entrepreneurial flair, when you were, when you were learning about law, were you, were you entrepreneurial before that? I'm dreaming of something bigger and, and out of the law, sort of lawyer, you know, courtroom kind of drama sort of stuff or, or what? No, no, well, the, the simple answer to that, Nathaniel, is I, I was an entrepreneur before I became a solicitor myself or as a lawyer. Um, so, I mean, it's it's in my DNA, I think. My father was an entrepreneur. Not unlike yourself, it's in your DNA of your interest in AI and machine learning with your father's background, of course, being from MIT. Uh, so I think I got the bug from a very early age. I've always been wanting to get into business and do startups and all the rest of it, uh, new ventures, fire in my belly, basically. But I, I did have a penchant for the law and legal because you can't be in business without, you know, <laughs> touching on, as you just said, legal contracts are going to make or break a business. Yeah. Um, and, and even with an NDA, you can choose whether or not you, you sign one or not based on whether or not you can trust people. And, and just to caveat it anyway, I mean, you can't protect an idea 
you know, an NDA is not protecting an idea. An NDA is protecting how that NDA idea is commercialized. So, for example, you, you, you might definitely be nervous if you know that you're going to talk to somebody and they could directly compete with you. So you, you, that's where an NDA has its non-compete clause in and what have you, because it's that which is a crucial element, because you want to feel comfortable that you can sit there and, you know, brain dump your wonderful ideas onto this person that you're going to trust and you're going to, you know, do a joint venture together or whatever. And then they just steal your idea and go off and do it on their own. Uh, and that's where you've got this non-compete element that comes into it. And then some other stuff in how you describe what is the the the, um, the, the product or describing the service or describing anything. So it's really important in that description goes into the NDA. Rolling back to the entrepreneurial side issues and understanding, I think as an entrepreneur, it really helps if, if you've had a, a plethora of skill sets being exposed in business. And what I mean by that is, understanding operations understanding sales understanding marketing finance legals because you have to wear many hats when you're an entrepreneur in a business and i think the the greater you're exposed to those different channels and verticals within a business itself those discrete areas if you've worked in those areas and got a good feel for them and branding in particular you know personal brands in nowadays with social media where you know leaders or people within companies having personalities is really important that has to dovetail with the company's brand strategy as well, which is really important. The, the legal enemet is still paramount in the success of a business. So getting those first legal contracts signed up, even between co-founders, your shareholders agreement, articles of association, your basic everyday contracts, whether it's your license agreements, your terms and conditions and website and uh, licensing and all the rest of it, they're, they're absolutely crucial because as you as you quite rightly say sometimes it can make or break your business um, and certainly if you're looking for investment and going forward you're going to have to have all of those in place plus you know your trademarks as such because investors are looking for value in your brand at that point in time as well you've already built and how you can protect it um, because certain things you may be able to protect so copyright is you know um, uh, comes to fruition naturally anyway as long as you stipulate it uh, but other things you need to apply for, such as your patents or your design rights and all the rest of it. Um, so, so these are really interesting areas, you say. Um, for myself as an entrepreneur, I've been quite blessed because I've purposely gone out of my way to make sure that in my career, I have actually exposed myself to learn those skills and those different discrete areas. Um, so marketing, sales, funnels, the whole lot of it. But then obviously a great... Um, skill of entrepreneurship is is actually realizing when it's not going right you know and and if you have to be prepared to fail you know some products you develop won't work um or they're just not good enough and or you know customers prefer something else and, and you've spent a lot of time and effort on something that you think is going to be the next fantastic thing and it just doesn't work out that way i mean we take those lessons from the steve jobs of this world and, and all the rest of them but i think that one of the the greatest thing is, is having to have empathy with your customers you know not only being able to stand in the shoes yourself as, as a buyer of whatever product you're developing, but to actually listen very, very deeply, you know, that deep dive into the customer experience and listen to them because they're going to be your users and buyers. And if you don't get it right, then you're going to fail. That, you know, being entrepreneurial is about those key things as well uh, of why companies do fail, whereby, you know, the, the initial founders, co-founders and the team that you put together, if that's not right, it can cripple you, you know, as a company. So being entrepreneurial is obviously trying to get that right. But obviously, you know, we do fail sometimes. Uh, second thing is obviously making sure that you've got enough finance and raising that initial finance, whether it's from yourself, you know, family, friends, 
initially and then going out to angel investment and having enough finance in place for at least two or three years because you know you're going to have the trials and tribulations. Still three out of four businesses fail in the first three years. Um, that. Thirdly as well is whether or not there's a market for what it is, you know, your, your fantastic pioneering idea and getting that product right and prototype right and, and then going out to the market and getting users and buyers. And that can take, you know, a good two, three, four, six years even. You know, I've, I've come across founders who have said, we still haven't really found our model. We're still playing with it and trialing it. And, you know, and, and they're four years in, having burnt a million pounds kind of thing. Uh, and so that's what entrepreneurialism is as well. Entrepreneurialism is, is being prepared for that long journey, that hard journey, that the frustration of it all when you've, you've worked a potential client for 18 months and they still haven't signed the dotted line to, to onboard. That is the reality of entrepreneurism and, and actually being okay with failure. It's, it's not a nice thing to, to deal with, but the reality is you will fail. You know, I have failed. We will fail and have failed at certain things, but we've picked ourselves up and, and we've spun and, and we've looked at things again. And, and it's one of those things where entrepreneurism takes effort and it takes, you know, hard work, long hours, humility as well, you know, stepping back and, you know, and trusting in your, you know, the people around you as well. Um, and entrepreneurism is also about celebrating and, you know, patting heads when it's, it's required, but also, you know, kicking ass when it's required as well. Um, so entrepreneurism is more than your skill set. It's, it's, it's about your, but your personal skills and your human skills and having that continual hunger whereby you constantly learn as well. I mean, part of my role is, is looking out for emerging technology. So we might be using a particular technology now, but how could we serve our customers in the, for, in the same way, but, but use an improved technology and how do we need to use our, use our technology now? So there's so much we could talk about, you know, as in the entrepreneurial hat and all those different skill sets. Brilliant. I think you'd, lo- you'd love the gentleman that I interviewed the day before yesterday. He, he, he had a eureka moment. He was, he was in brand branding, yeah? Mm-hmm. And he was, he was sitting in an office and he was, he was looking at bubbles for a bubble bath. And, and, he, and he sat there and, and, and like, I think his boss said to him, you know, you need, to, you need to measure these bubbles and you need to think about the size of the bubbles and you need to do all this and everything else. And he just sort of looked out the window and he just thought, life's got to be better than this. <laughs> <laughs> is a proper eureka moment i thought you were going to go on to einstein then because he had his eureka moment didn't he when he was sat in a bubble bath or something oh did he <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he interestingly enough you'd love douglas he, he actually did did a degree in, in in international business law and became a barrister literally from that very moment he was like right i'm gonna go and do something and he just decided to become a lawyer yeah and and, and you've done it the right way i mean i think i think you know, going into law, I mean, if, if, if you actually just listen to the interview that I did with him, there's very little editing. And I don't expect there'll be much editing of this one. And that's because you're used to standing up in front of lots of people and particularly a judge and actually explaining something. And if you kept saying, um, 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 the judge would just tell you to get out probably is what Douglas <laughs> <laughs> we we still do that sometimes when we're not sure where we want to take the conversation so i wouldn't say that this has been 100 perfect at all because you do listen to yourself sometimes but i would love to be introduced to douglas he sounds like a real character as well oh he's brilliant our, our interview i'm calling it branding lessons from working at krug 
<laughs> that'd be great. Yeah, it's because he worked his work with Krug Champagne and like just used to write speeches for the I keep saying the president of Malaysia, but it's not, it's the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So I've just learned so much from him over the years about branding that I I just seek out people like yourself who are experts in their field because I find it absolutely fascinating to just listen and and that's part of the entrepreneurial skill set isn't it it's just that there's just that relentless want and desire to just learn more every day right absolutely you know and it's i, I get frustrated because I, I don't have enough time to read more so you, you're grabbing snippets off twitter or you know bits off your phone in your whatsapp groups or whatever and uh, and i just wish i could you know i wish it was a 36 hour day i really do um <laughs> but but you know it's uh you, you do keep constantly learning through experience and practice anyway. So you're thrown, you know, you're thrown curveballs. So, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurism as well is, is very much about dealing with those curveballs. You know, a lot, you know, some personalities and characters of people, they just can't handle that. Um, and like I say, if, if, if you do fail and your company, you know, plummets to the floor or you've got to wrap it up because things aren't working out, whatever the reason is, it's having that positivity and that mindset. I think, all oh, right, okay, well, that was tough and it didn't really quite work out. Nothing stopped me from doing the next venture or improving this venture in a new way. Let's rethink it. Let's use design thinking and all the rest of it. So, you know, most entrepreneurs will keep going and those are the serial entrepreneurs. You know, a real entrepreneur is, is a constant entrepreneur who's onto the next and the next and the next and the next venture. You know, these one-hat wonder entrepreneurs, I'm not so sure they're really entrepreneurs. They're just lucky business people. Um, and I think that's quite different. And, and I think entrepreneurs have, uh, are very much that they, they're spotting new opportunities all the time because one of the problems of being an entrepreneur is you've got so many ideas yeah. that yeah. You, you lose focus. And, and one of the challenges as an entrepreneur is to stay focused on your prime uh, venture at that point in time and, and stick to what your, you know, your core purpose and idea was and is only deflect and react and be agile where you're still true to your core purpose, but you may have to invent some different products, but you still set out with your vision, mission, and aim, which, which, which remains solid. Um, and a lot of entrepreneurs fail because they go all over the place and they don't stay focused. And they, for example, might develop a hundred products when you only need five or spend 10 million on technology and you might only really need to spend 1 million. So making those crucial decisions is really, really important as well. I agree 100%. The amount of times I've wasted on on the next big idea that I never really managed to get off the ground because I had so many other ideas that were, it's like spinning plates. And if you try and spin 20 plates and you're not a plate spinner, it isn't going to work. So you've got to almost just, just cut everything out that doesn't fit, like you say. But it's But the thing is, is that, it's about being able to say no, isn't it? Because there are, there are just so many ideas. I mean, I get approached by people. Since I've, since I've been doing this podcast, I get approached by people all the time. You know, I want you to partner with me on this. I want you to, can you yes. help me with this? And it's almost, it's almost very, very, it's actually very, very difficult to say no. Something may just come along, which you actually turn around and say, well, actually, if what I'm doing now, I can I can reduce my time in and I can continue to, to, to make money and grow that venture, then I may jump into something else because the opportunities come along and it is a life-changing opportunity. I've had two of those in the last few months. I'm not I don't know what I'm gonna do with them. I may not do either of them because <laughs> but yes. but the, but the, you get the point I'm making. It, it's it's kind of 
I agree with you about about the the, the per. It's like your purpose, isn't it? It's like if if their if their sort of mission statement and their morals and their principles fit in there with yours, then that's going to work for you, right? Correct. Yeah. But if if their purpose and their principles are, are shallow and hollow, and there isn't any empathy, there isn't any compassion for people who, in essence, are having a tough time because life is not easy and a lot of people, they think it is. And when they reach a certain place in their career, they think it is. And then they go and launch a company. And it's like, well, well, what are, your, what are you going to do to help the world? Like how you, I mean, the point of this podcast is to give away information so people actually learn something valuable and they can actually upskill. That's the purpose of my podcast, yeah? Mm, and, yes. And, and bring experts to the world so that people can actually listen to them and i know that if i do that then that is a great thing to do you know and i want to help people understand there are a lot of homeless people out there so i'm sort of championing championing the the kind of homelessness charities i'm working yes. on working on helping someone with a great. you know the church and this kind of stuff that actually help the community and they've got like a really holistic view to how they help people. So they help them go to the gym, they help them get accommodation, they help them get food, um, have some new friends, get out of their circles that they're in, you know. So it's just like, you can always get lost though. That's the, that's the major issue I've got with the entrepreneurial problem that we have. We have an ingrained problem in society and it says, oh, I can build the next PayPal. I can build, <laughs> yeah. and it's a delusionary issue that people have and unfortunately i think it's responsible for a lot of suicides robot Lolita is very much about social enterprise it is about that bigger picture and making a huge difference to the mass majority of people basically having the ability to to create something that could make a huge difference and be a positive disruption that's been needed for a long time and technology exists now so it, it should happen but you've just got to be patient with it but it's it's the social enterprise angle that is that you have to have purpose beyond the monetary side of things it has to be something greater and and I, and I agree with you because you get pulled and and other opportunities basically where people approach you and say will you help with this will you come and be a non-executive director or will you be a director even on the, the charity side of it and you can only do so much and it's really really hard to say no but you have to do it in a respectful and nice way as well say so, you know for me, I just I did one a couple of days ago, and like yourself, I, I was blown away by what this company is and what directors are on board. First and foremost, it was first I have to stay focused and true to my venture, Robert Lloyd Lisa, and, and the shareholders in that. So you've got to say, well, you know, your primary focus is this, and if I'm deflected, will it impact the primary? If it doesn't impact the primary, and it can be done, and you're thinking, yes, I can manage this because I'm going to support this other venture instead of you know, going to football on Saturday or, you know, something else. It's about making those decisions about your big rocks in your life and also your commitments to the people that you're already involved with. And I think that's important. But I think all of us do have capacities in our lives to have that mix of your commitment to your work, whether it's one or two ventures and a charity cause of sort, and your family, of course, and then yourself and, and your own leisure pursuit, because that balance is really important. And you know, as entrepreneurs, we're not usually very good at doing that, actually, because as entrepreneurs, we tend to just put number one, work, work, work in the box and everything else around it falls apart. <laughs> so yeah. uh, an entrepreneurial skill is actually 
being aware that you are tempted by all these other fantastic opportunities and getting involved in things, but you do have to be very judicious in what you do do because it will impact all the other aspects of your life or business. And, uh, and that is a skill set that you learn, I think, as you mature, as you get a bit older, because having, you know, burnt yourself out for the first time or second time and had some kind of illness because you're exhausted, uh, most entrepreneurs sit back at some point and think, there's got, you know, I've got to get some balance back in my life here. And, and what am I doing where I need to share some of the workload or, you know, call it a day because it ain't working or start again, but make sure you have more people around you making those kind of judgments and assessments you learn through experience having had some failures actually as an entrepreneur in 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 previous ventures and eventually most entrepreneurs get it right they might fail lots of times and then they get to age 50 55 and all of a sudden they are the next amazon or whatever i think the average age of a successful entrepreneur is 47 so yeah 47 right now so here's to the Hey, well, I'm, I'm, I'm 42 and, and I'm certainly making some massive positive steps forwards, you know, but I think completely right. I think that there's all this, you know, oh, well, there are these entrepreneurs who are like in their 20s and they're really successful. But actually, when you look at the figures and you compare the figures with the successful entrepreneurs, they're definitely over 40. I was reading an article the other day about it. And, you know, there are people who didn't become successful to their 70. I mean, look at the lady that launched, yeah. what was it? that She launched The Secret and Louise Hay, uh, that lady, and she, and she launched all of those, that book publishing company and became like massively successful at the age of like 75 or something. It's wow. Just, yeah, you know, so it's, it's totally possible. Totally. It is, it is. And, and I think a, a good point they've just raised, actually, you shouldn't be phased by age. You know, yeah. I think the older you are, the better it is because you, you will have had a lot of bruises and you're more experienced and you've got more life experience, so personal and professional, and you need to bring both of those into a business. Um, and, you know, I think some of the young ones, if they're, you know, they tend to be the ones that are put out in lights are the, the unique. It's just like Roger Bannister doing the first four-minute mile. He was the first to do it or the second to do it or whatever. And then, you know, these, these young ones through, it's fantastic what they're achieving because they're obviously very bright, and, um, mm. but they're also quite lucky. Because, you know, you can get picked up quite young when, you, when you're a star and, and then you, you're on a funnel where, you know, there's less, there's less chance of you failing as well because obviously you've got the right people. They put the right people around you and the financing very early on. But, but they are the, the ones that get the, the, the pages in the, the media are, are the exceptions rather than the rules. So for every one or two that are the next Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Den, Denise Haribis, the rest of them, there's a thousand, ten thousand other teenagers or those in their twenties who have, have, you know, failed in their first business and, and lost their graduation money and that kind of thing. So I think we need to bear that in mind as well that to, we have to be realistic and put some perspective and saying that entrepreneurship isn't just about the Warren Beatties. Entrepreneurship is about the everyday person who we know in the next decade, twenty percent of the UK population are going to be self-employed and working as entrepreneurs. So if that's the case, then those skill sets of those entrepreneurs, then hopefully a lot of them have been exposed to these professional verticals I talked about earlier because they're going to need those because a lot of entrepreneurs starting off are usually a two-man band, either one-man band or a two-man band, and then looking to grow to a team of four to six. And you're going to have to have the right skills in order to 
pick the right people and nurture those people and not just the people, but, you know, as we've said, the technology and the finance as well. So there's going to be a lot of support needed for the entrepreneurs of the next decade and two, because raising awareness and education of the skill sets that are required is a key thing, I think, going forward. And there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of bruised people and, and a lot of fallout and a lot of failures. But conversely, there's going to be a, a lot of great new companies starting up and some great successes, I hope. I agree completely. I think there was a lot of a lot of people were scared about AI and machine learning and how it's going to replace jobs and stuff. But but in fact, I think that you know if if they give us what they promised us, which was which was when the first industrial revolution came along, you know, more money, less hours, right? We've been promised that for like how many years? Hundred, <laughs> hundred and fifty years. Yeah. <laughs> You know what? What are we now? We're we're 150 years into this industrial revolution. I think you know. Apparently, in the we were in the second machine age, but I reckon we're in the fourth now or something. But mm. there are going to be a lot of certainly very interesting businesses that haven't even been created yet. Yes, jobs are going to die. I mean, you've got you've got you know front end robots now working in retail, as from you know the last. Yeah few yeah. trials that have sort of been happening which i find hugely interesting and that that trend is going to continue so really we want we want exactly what they promised right which is say again it's, it's less hours more money and we want that for everyone and everyone needs to have a stake in 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 a lot of these businesses otherwise you're going to have businesses that that just don't have any employees there will just be you know, like a business, it'll have 10 billion in revenue and there'll be two people, right? Mm-hmm. So there needs to be, I mean, there aren't any actual guidelines around this, but, you know, we're getting into a sort of quite a deep topic, but there needs to be some sort of ethical constraints around it, which says, you know, yes, I could replace that individual, but I'd rather actually find them something more interesting to do um, instead of, I'll get rid of them and then there'll just be less people and the shareholders make more money. You know, it's a difficult call because of competition, isn't it? Yeah. I, and, and obviously, I mean, my background, you know, I've, I've been behind the scenes in, in some in some think tanks basically around this issue about, you know, the, the displacement of workers, you know, and, and even in the, the legal field, people think, oh, well, lawyers will be replaced. And I say, well, it's a mix of some of the tasks and roles that they did will be replaced and ought to be because it should be automated. Yeah, um, but then it's not that you get rid of them; it's that you put them somewhere else where they should be doing the human stuff that the machines can't do. Yeah. I see it; it's quite a simple thing, really. It, I think it's inevitable that the numbers of traditional solicitors will decrease as the years move on in doing the kind of tasks that they're traditionally used to do. I think that is inevitable, and we're starting to see it anyway. You know, we started to see you know, the, the secretaries, the PAs or the, the legal execs or the juniors being placed some of the grunt work. But then the work that the human sisters still do is the high end, you know, the judgment, the reasoning, and they're supported by the technology. So you're always going to need some human sisters. I think we talked about this earlier anyway. There is going to be displacement. Of course there is. But then there's going to be some new roles where you have, you know, legal tech engineers and robot engineers and, you know, design thinking teams and all that kind of thing where you're corralling a, a a matrix of looking at the law and business and customers and technology and people are so even the solicitors are going to have new skills to learn and then move into a different area completely so I agree with you in that there's going to be new roles new tasks and new jobs 
So it, it might be that machines come in and, and because they're more efficient and far better than the humans, then why not have a more efficient system? But efficient system means that balance of technology with a human, not you know completely being technology without the human. Um, and the big debate, I agree with you about, you know, putting some ethical rules or guidelines in. I think until government steps up, and that's the problem, you're never going to have policy regulation and law coming in too soon because what governments and the UK in particular or any uh, nation government, they don't want to stifle innovation and they want they want competition because that's healthy. But I think you've already seen even with GDPR. Even the even the big companies, they're not uh, they're not going to be able to just run amok year on year. If necessary, law will come in to prevent that from happening, and they will be accountable and responsible to nations. And I think we've seen that with GDPR, where we've seen recent fines with Facebook and and others, whereby you know looking at data, how it's used, uh, how it affects consumers. So I think we could feel quite comfortable that as we move into these um, opportunistic but also challenging times, regulation policy and law will catch up, even if the horse has already bolted. You know, Bill Gates made his fortune with Microsoft mm. because he had the loopholes where the law hadn't caught up. And Amazon has and Facebook and all the rest of them. But they will be held to account going forward. And certainly uh, the whole debate about should there be a robot tax or a machine tax, tech tech tax. I mean, I, I think, yes, there should actually. I think we should re, rethink our whole economy and tax system based on the fact that we will be having more machines doing human labor work. And if that's the case, we need to look at the system whereby if companies are uh, skewed towards having more technology pumping out product and service, then there is a relative tax that is quite different to a company that is employing, you know, human labor 90% as opposed to a company that's using technology 90%. I think we should actually look at the tax system and, and there we might start to, to see that the pool is then used where robot tax comes in and those funds are used in a positive way for the majority of the people in a nation. I'm just nodding away. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see me because we haven't got our video on, but literally I even put my best shirt on and everything for you. <laughs> It's <laughs> again. Hey. I, need to, I need to put my best shirt on as well because I think today it's because I'm in my gym gear that I haven't done it. <laughs> it's all right. I mean, sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm really pleased they didn't, they didn't put the yeah. camera on because I'm just not. I'm not feeling it today. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's absolutely fantastic. That's, that's so great to understand more about you know you and your ethics and and how we totally agree. And that's what's so interesting about about social media. We've sort of connected and I've, you know, I've read about your journey and, you know, I tried to sort of talk to you, but you've been so busy and, and so have I. You know, so great that to actually understand that we've got so much more in common that I, that I even thought of, which is just it's fascinating, isn't it, really? I mean, it would, I know, and it's really bad, but I mean, it would be great to me. I mean, I know you're Chester and I'm up here in Yorkshire, but um, I do tend to be in London quite a bit. But certainly, Nathaniel, if you're up in Yorkshire, give me a bell and, we, you know, we'll have a beer and that'd be fantastic. And because um, I don't want really to go to Chichester because it's a bit out of the way, but, you know, London, I mean, I'm sure you'll probably get to London sometime as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and it'd be great just to honestly just sit and chat and have a beer and talk about all this stuff. Because I'm, I'm just as enthralled to pick your brains about AI, machine learning, and your dad's experience at MIT. Because, you know, I was just asked if I would go and do the uh, legal tech woman uh, speech over in Chicago in February, February 27th, just before the big ABA, um, um, which is the American Bar Association thing. 
and, and I've had to decline because I said, you know, this is too short notice. I have so many commitments. I'm off to South Africa in March. I said, I would have loved to because if I'd gone to Chicago, I'd have gone to MIT because I've always wanted to go and see, you know, have a wander around and all the rest of it. So um, it's, wow. it's my bucket list. So um, I do want to go and, and I'd love to have a chat to you about it, actually. My grandfather went there as well. He um in the family. Why didn't you go then? Because, because I was a rebel. I, I went to wine studies college. I did an HND in wine studies. I learned how to make make wine, grow the grapes, uh, marketing. You know all about the taste of wine, and and I think that's been it's been good for me. It's given me a bit of culture. You know, I think sooner or later I definitely want to go to MIT and do something. I don't I, I want I don't want to just go there just to look around. My dad won the Morgan Award, the JP Morgan Award at MIT. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, well, he used to interview prospective students from the UK who wanted to go to MIT. Yeah, so yeah. They would go and visit him, and he did that for, I think, you know, decades. And they would go and speak to him, and he'd be like, well, it's not a lot really to your personal brand, son. You know, you best go and, like, learn a language or go and do some sort of hobbies because, frankly, you're not going to get into this school if you carry on the way you're looking. And yeah. And that was his that was his advice for people. So MIT recognized that and they gave him this this prize. I'm really proud of my dad. He's just he's 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 phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. But my grandfather had something to do with the something to do with the building design there when they were looking at redesigning the buildings. I think in the like 30s or maybe the four. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly, but it was you know the earlier part of the of the of the of the century basically you know i'd love to go there and do something it should it could be super super exciting i mean that's the spirit of entrepreneurialism isn't it yeah and i always share some of my talks because i was blessed I, I was asked to go um just last year actually at the nordic business forum i i was interviewing andrew McAfee. so i, I had a, a keynote to do with one of the law firms that the brought along a lot of its clients basically so that you know the clients were interested in understanding what was possible in the legal world so I gave that but then I also interviewed Andrew McAfee and his perspective on it all which is fantastic and obviously Andrew McAfee is well connected with MIT and we we're just discussing it and he said that the wonderful thing is as is, Mike is, I'd already read as well is he said it's great because it's such a mishmash of such genius people so you've got the chemistry department next to geography and then geography is next to physics and then the physics is next to the biology and then you've got all these different ones. So he said, you're starting to get the whole, you know, he said, we really think that MIT is so successful because of this matrix of different fields of study that have been thrown into one pot rather than kept in discrete form, if that makes sense. So he said, we think that a lot of the great breakthroughs in science that have occurred in the last you know, decade or two has spun out of the MIT kind of setup because you've got physicists working with chemists and biologists and mathematicians, then we realize that we've got it all wrong regarding physics. So, uh, you know, and it was just amazing just to listen to him. And uh, Mm. um, so I've always had this real penchant to actually get myself there and start mixing it with some of these genius people. (laughs) Well, me me too, you know, but what, what's really interesting you might not know is if you actually, if you're a student and you get into MIT, which is, you know, like seriously hard, you you they actually say that they will guarantee that you can afford to go there and that and that if you get in and they guarantee that you can afford to stay there because you know that wherever you're going to get placed you're going to be able to pay off your student loans well they're going to they're going to get you work i mean literally they will they will they will give you work give you projects that are going to make you money and then you can progress through that so that's another reason that that is 
you know, they're number one in the world, aren't they? You know, I don't know the answer to that. It wouldn't surprise me if they are. I Certainly mean, in America, anyway. I mean, a lot of people, my sister went to Yale, you know, so she would probably like, go, what are you talking about? You know, but there's all yeah. this rivalry, isn't there? But uh, yeah, I think certainly that's got to be a, got to be a trip. It's on my it's on my list for sure. It's the Ivy League stuff, though, isn't it? It depends what what field of study it is. So you've yeah. always got Yale and Harvard in America for law. Yeah, and, and it's just like in England, you've got Oxford and Cambridge, uh, and Durham actually, I think Durham for business. So you've got the Ivy League of whatever subject area it is, rather than saying which is the top university because it's relative to what subject area, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think MIT is well, without a doubt, it probably is for you know science and technology for STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, yeah. It's probably the, the top in the world. Uh, that said, you know some of them in China and that now, you know they've they've got great reputations. So it, it really just depends. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree completely. And it's well, it's down to the individual as well, isn't it? And 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 everything else. But look. Uh, you've been so generous with your time. I, I really appreciate it. No, likewise. It's been a pleasure. And I can only just ask that you forgive me for how many times I've bummed you off. <laughs> it's it's absolutely fine. I know what it's like. And I knew we'd get there in the end. I, yeah. The thing is, I, <laughs> you know, if, well, if I see someone that I, that I just know that I'm going to just have a great conversation with, I just pursue them until they say yes. Like, I yeah, just... That, that, that is... And that is one of the best traits of entrepreneurism that's with all of us. It's you're persistent. You know, true entrepreneurs never stop. Yeah. Uh, they constantly go at it. They're persistent. You know, they're like, like as I say, you're a terrier up a drain pipe. You're not going <laughs> to go. Until you get what you want and get in front of that person you really want to talk to, you're not going to stop. And, uh, and that's what entrepreneurism is. A lot of people give up. So for me, they're not real entrepreneurs. You know, when they, you fall the first, second, third hurdle. Yeah. You know, entrepreneurs really just keep going you know, the battery doesn't wear out. I agree. And you just get up one more time, you know, as simple as that. And that time is going to be when you invent something amazing. I mean, so how do people get hold of you or, or find this amazing, amazing robot lawyer? How, how do they find that? It's really easy. We've tried to keep everything really easy. You just need to go to robotlawyerlisa.com and that you will find everything on there. You can uh, create your NDA for free. So have a read through that and click on the button and have a play. Um, you'll see the other property contract tools on there, a nice little orange button on the top right. There's loads of media stuff on there. So anything that we haven't discussed today, there's two years of articles, blogs, podcasts, as such, all about Robot Lawyer Lisa, customers, subjects we've touched on now as well. And myself personally, Nathaniel, through my speaking engagement and consultancy hat you'll find me at entrepreneurlawyer.co.uk once again loads of articles on there some of them about entrepreneurship actually going back in the last eight years so you'll find that on the blog roll as well as articles media section the books as well you know some of the things we touched on today about entrepreneurialism and marketing branding personal branding the naked lawyer books on there it's been a bestseller and tomorrow's Naked Lawyers on there as well, which is all about the impact of AI and robots in society and law. That's worth taking a look at as well. But you'll find them all at entrepreneurlawyer.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe and wherever you prefer, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed the show, drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.